The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 1. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And our subject is the legion of demons. This is a miracle that uh, brings, divides easily into uh, three parts. We need to review the miracle. Then we need to see how the gospel of redeeming grace is taught, pictured in the miracle. And then finally, we need to see how the picture of the miracle provided by it speaks to believers in a very special way. Well, this is a famous and even controversial miracle. In the 1880s, you may know, there was a long debate, lasted months, and it was public debate conducted in periodicals, journals, and reported in the newspaper. And the debate was between Prime Minister Gladstone and Thomas Huxley, known as Darwin's bulldog. That's a description he gave himself. And Huxley, of course, was very much against the inspiration of the Bible. He was described himself as an agnostic, but effectively he was an atheist. He was a brilliant naturalist student of anatomy and professor of anatomy but not so good as a thinker however he was um, a militant atheist and a debate started between him and the prime minister it started in the book of Genesis on the credibility of the Genesis account of creation and prime minister Gladstone was defending the inspiration and authority of scripture and the biblical account of creation. Imagine that these days, a prime minister taking that position. Gladstone, we know, was a high churchman, but nevertheless, he did believe in the inspiration and authority of scripture. And he defended that somehow the debate wandered into Mark's gospel, chapter five, and became focused on the casting out of the legion of demons. And Huxley thought this was a scandal, not that he believed it ever happened, but he thought it was a scandal because it was a violation of private property, it was a wicked thing to do, and, uh, and so on, for the herd of swine, 2,000 pigs to be destroyed, and uh, he was generally against it. And of course, the prime minister was pointing out that uh, they were Jews, and it was against the Jewish divinely given law for that period for them to be uh, dealing with uh, pigs. And Huxley, uh, quoting Josephus, took the view that there were no Jews in the five cities in Decapolis, and it was Gentile territory, it wasn't Jewish, so the whole thing was a scandal. And the Prime Minister's position was, you, well, that may very well be 
the argument advanced by Josephus, but if it's in the Bible, that too is historical record, and that is true and right. It uh, was Gentile territory, but there, was, there were Jews there, and these people were Jews. Well, that's, that was the debate, and it raged on between the two men. Uh, the historians say that Huxley had the better of the debate, that he showed how poor Gladstone's equipped, theological equipment was to make this argument. When you read the articles for yourselves, well, certainly for me, I had the opposite impression that Thomas Huxley was bombastic, pompous, uh, dreadfully insulting. More than 50% of everything he ever wrote was uh, insulting to the other side rather than making a credible argument and that Gladstone handled his case very well indeed. Enough of that, because that doesn't edify us except to remark what a change we see today when almost no one in public life today has any understanding or knowledge of the revelation of God of the scriptures. That almost nobody even understands the basic teaching of the scriptures in public life. How can you, and this is not party political, it goes for all the parties, how can you possibly be a home secretary and you don't believe in or understand the depravity of man, the corruption of the human heart, and you hold this naive and foolish belief completely against all the evidence that all people are good at heart. How can you be a home secretary with that kind of nonsense in your head? What a tragedy we're in today, quite apart from parties. Anyway, we come to this remarkable miracle. They came over unto the other side of the sea. And verse 2, let's review it quickly first. And when Christ was come out of the ship, there were several ships. You remember earlier on in the record, there were little ships. He had been preaching off the shore of Capernaum to vast crowds from one of the fishing vessels. And there were other vessels with them. Now they've crossed the sea. And according to Matthew's gospel, there are actually two demon-possessed men. Mark focuses only on one of them. Why? It's difficult to say. Probably all the events, Mark's gospel has a much longer account of this than Matthew's gospel. Perhaps all the events only occurred to one of the men. So Mark focuses on him. But there were two of them. And they were very wild, and they lived in tombs. The place can be identified today. There is a place in this general territory occupied by the Gadarenes on that northeastern side of the Lake of Tiberias, where there's a very steep slope, such as these swine ran down into the sea, and so on, where there are rocky tombs, Rocks, caves that were used as tombs. So it's to be seen today, the area. But there were these two men 
living away from society in tombs, and they saw this cluster of vessels appearing. And they watched them. And they saw Christ come out of one of the ships with others. I imagine, but this is speculation, they looked and they thought, well, they're fishermen, but they're not fishing. There's no sign of nets. What are they doing? They're disembarking right here on this shore where there were just pigs. And then I rather fancy they saw them perhaps kneel down and pray. It's just speculation, just a guess. Because something caused these men to identify Christ. They had no doubt heard of him and how many people thought this miracle-working man who taught so amazingly was Messiah. And here is a party of a man with disciples and others also. Perhaps it gave the game away that they stopped and they paused and they prayed or somehow or other these two wild characters knew this must be Jesus of Nazareth. You could suppose that they knew it was Jesus of Nazareth because they were demon-possessed. It was demonic knowledge. But equally, it's likely they identified him as he came ashore, put two and two together. But immediately, they ran down, but we'll stick to the one who Mark focuses on. They met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling, verse 3, among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. A little bit more is said in Luke, another word or two in Matthew, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and he'd plucked them asunder and broken the fetters in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. What a picture! of this man. He was antisocial. He had removed himself, the pair of them, from society. He was untamable. Matthew says people were scared to pass by. You didn't dare go near them. They would presumably scream out and attack you. Here it says they cried out. This man was crying but the Greek verb is an interesting word which is used more for the screeching of ravens. So the modern versions tend to say they screamed. And I think that's right. Where our King James is just a bit delicate in its translation here. But the Greek verb is the screeching of ravens. When someone comes to interfere with the nest, they screech so aggressively. And that's what this man did. And he's very powerful. He would self-harm. Always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying, screeching, there's the verb, and cutting himself with stones. So he was angry. 
He couldn't control himself. He couldn't be controlled. He was aggressive. He was wild in every sense. And yet a curious thing, verse 6, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran with his great concern and worshipped him, prostrated himself before him. Amazing. Part of this man has a great sense of need. He wants something. You can only assume he realized it was Jesus of Nazareth. He says so very soon. And he wanted to be released. He wanted relief. He wanted to be delivered from his condition. So he prostrates himself before him and ran to him as fast as he could. And yet the voice that came out of him was the opposite way. Verse 7, he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? And then he pleads powerfully with Christ not to torment him. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So half of him wanted something, deliverance, help. And half of him said, don't torment me. Whatever gave him the impression that Christ would torment him. That was the demon speaking within him, who had already been commanded to leave him. Verse 8, for he said unto him, or he had said unto him, is the Greek, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. So he's a split individual. Perhaps it's the, the man himself. He wants deliverance. But the demon-controlled man believes that Christ represents torment. So this is, all these factors are significant to us, as we'll see. And Christ asks him, verse 9, this is just the review, what is thy name? Why did Christ ask that? He would have known the answer. He was God. He asks it for the sake of the disciples and the record. And for our sakes, it's important we should hear this reply. He already knew. And the man answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Well, you know how many men were in a Roman legion. A legion was 6,000. So there's a vast number of demons. You need not say mathematically exactly 6,000. There were just many demons. Demon possession today, as I often say, is very rare. You've really got to cooperate with the demons of darkness in some occult way and really welcome them in because one of the great benefits of the coming of Christ to mankind is that with his coming, the involuntary occupation of human beings by demons was brought to an end. You have got to be cooperating to be possessed 
There's no demon possessing which is involuntary today. We all benefit, even the lost, from the coming of Christ. My name is Legion, for we are many. And this demon-possessed man besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Why did they do that? Why did they not want to leave that country? Because although there were Jews there, and these uh, Jewish business people running this illegally for them, under the divine law, this great herd of sheep making money out of the Gentiles, doing something they shouldn't have been doing. There were Jews there, undoubtedly, but it was generally pagan territory. So the demons were more at home in that place. And verse 11, now they were nigh, there nigh unto the mountains, a great herd of swine feeding, 2,000 for those times, the experts tell us, that's an enormous herd. And all the devils besought him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. I won't attempt to give you the reasons why that may have been their wish. Would only be speculation. Verse 13 and forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, 2,000, and were choked, drowned in the sea. Well, Christ knew that would happen. We might legitimately ask, why? Did he allow the demons to execute the swine? The demons may not have realized that their entering into the swine would lead to that uh, catastrophe, the drowning of the swine. Well, the answer is obvious. It was necessary for the man out of whom the demons were cast and for the onlookers and for us, and for the record, it was necessary that the evil and destructive power of demons should be demonstrated. Why, if Christ had just cast out those demons and gone into oblivion, their fate unseen by us, it wouldn't make such an impact. We wouldn't realize the evil and the destructive power and the death that resulted from demonic activity. But the catastrophe to the great herd of swine demonstrated to everyone and to us, if we think about it, the devastating effects of sin and the powers of darkness and demon activity. It's a demonstration of that. It's a demonstration of the power of Christ. If those demons and their entering into the swine could result in the rushing to death of all of them, how great was the power of Christ in casting them out of the word. It demonstrated his divinity and his power. And it also 
is a kind of pictorial lesson of judgment and hell. That's what happens when we live our lives under the sway of Satan and the powers of darkness, doing as we're tempted, ignoring the Lord in the grip of the evil one. It leads to ultimate death and judgment. So you can understand that Christ allowed that to happen because there was a powerful demonstration in it. And verse 14, they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. Well, of course, they would be defending themselves. They didn't want to be blamed for the loss of such a herd. They were poor men. So they wanted the whole community to know it wasn't their fault. It was the result of this strange visiting preacher prophet, as they might have thought. And all the people went out to see the spectacle, to see the sight where this extraordinary thing was done. And verse 15, they came to Christ where he was at these wonderful words, and they saw him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting, clothed, he'd been unclothed before, at peace and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You know, the old preachers used to preach sermons on this passage and you see it in the sermons of old, often referred to, and they used to like to home on what were called the three pleadings. And there are three pleadings here in this passage. And you pick them up, uh, really, uh, from in several of the well, there's five pleadings, but there are three that are of particular importance. The first one is in verse 10. And he besought him much. This is the demonized man before he, the demon was cast out. He besought him much, pleaded with him, that he would not send them away out of the country. And the next one is in verse 12. And all the devils besought him. The second pleading, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And the next pleading is down in verses 16 and 17. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him. Same word in the Greek, besought him. They besought him, pleaded with him to depart from them. So sermons used to be preached on the three pleadings. How does it work? Well, first of all, verse 10, the demonized man said, leave me in the world. Don't interfere with me. He besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. And that's the same reaction, though we're not demonized. It pictures our reaction when we first hear the preaching of the gospel that Christ came to suffer and die for sinners that we may go to him in repentance and trust in him and receive a new life 
and be related to God and walk with him and be transformed and changed and be given spiritual life and be put on the pathway to heaven. And the first thing we do is we plead to be left in the world. Leave me where I am. Don't send me out of these parts, out of this country. I'm content and happy the way I am. And that's our first reaction. We plead to be left alone. Don't tell me these things. Don't tell me about Christ. Don't tell me about repentance and conversion and new life and heaven. Leave me where I am in this world, in material things. Shut up with flesh and time. This is where I'm happy and I can send my life away and do what I want, how I want, and no love for God and no interest in him. That's the first pleading. The second pleading was there in verse 12. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. We'd rather be in the animals. Yes, but in a strange way that pictures us. I don't want to be a converted person with spiritual life, praying to God, understanding the purpose of my being and creation, on the pathway to heaven, living for righteousness, struggling against sin, living for the Lord, praying to him, pleasing him. I don't want that. I'd rather be an animal. I'd rather get rid of my mind and my reason. Be in the pub, even be drunk, tipsy, unable to think. I'd rather be a lower person than a higher person. Not understanding God, not living for him, grubbing about on the surface of the earth. Send me to the animals. I go to places of entertainment. I can take, if not drink, the sound drug. Boom, boom, boom. The regular beat. Sway about, behave like a lunatic and a fool. Enjoy trivial, insubstantial, absurd things. I'd rather be half an animal than a man or a woman walking with God, appreciating him under his sway, looking for him. That's the second pleading. Let me just be half a human being. No spiritual aspirations or life at all. And then the third pleading down there in verse 17. And they began to pray him. They besought him to depart out of their coasts when they saw what Christ had done for this poor man who had been demon-possessed and out of his mind. They were afraid. I don't want to be changed. I don't want to be made new. I don't want conversion. Go away. Leave us alone. Go away. Get back in that ship and cross the lake. And he did. 
He went away. Of course, he didn't go entirely away because there were some people there would be converted. He left a messenger, but more of that in a moment. He left the healed man behind to testify to others and speak of what had happened to him. But for most people, he went. And if you say, go away, to Christ Jesus, the Saviour and Lord, just once too often, he will go away from you. And you'll never be touched again. And you'll never be called again. And your fate will be sealed. And you're on the pathway to eternal judgment and ruin. So you see, the old preachers used to preach about the three pleadings of the lost soul to Christ. That's very telling. But in the midst of it, there was the man who was healed and saved and restored and in his right mind and how he loved Christ and he wanted to be with him and he pleaded with Christ but in the opposite way let me follow you let me stay with you and Christ said in effect not yet and that's what he says to us when we repent of our sin and we find him there's part of us would almost wish to be with him straight away in glory. But no, for the moment you're posted here to make known what has happened to you. And in due course, you'll be with me, says Christ, throughout the everlasting ages. But just in our last few moments, let me tell you what this miracle has to say to us as Christians. We're not demon-possessed. We love the Lord. But you remember what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians? He speaks of acting in such a way as to prevent Satan getting an advantage of us. And then he says these words, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The Greek says methods. We are not ignorant of his methods, his strategies, his devices in our King James Version. Well, where do we learn about his strategies? his methods in many places, but in this miracle, for example. You'll learn much about the methods of Satan. What the legion of demons did in the life of this man is what they try to do even to believers. We're not demon-possessed, but... What happens to us is reflected here. The man was isolated from society, lived in the tombs, wore no clothes, 
roamed the hills and the mountains, screaming and shouting at people to go away. How does that picture us? Well, you're a believer, but one of Satan's devices to make you a backslider is to isolate you. So you start coming out to Bible studies less often. And certainly to prayer meetings. And maybe reduce to one service on a Sunday. And maybe rush out quickly afterwards. I don't want to hurt somebody who has to rush out because they've got a train to catch. But you rush out because you're not particularly interested in fellowship. You found the Lord. And the devil is in a smaller way doing what he did for this man. He's isolating you so that you, you don't get so much ministry. You're not encouraged so much, challenged so much. You don't interact with other people. Step one, isolate the Christian. Take them out of their environment, away from the influences that they need. And you become uncontrolled. Those two men, particularly this one, Mark has in mind, they were uncontrolled in their behavior. Maybe you lose your temper a lot. Maybe there are things that you do on impulse. You used to resist those sins, but now they just happen. You've lost control. Your self-control has got weaker and weaker. That's what the legion of demons did to this man. In a lesser way, that's what Satan, it's his method, his unvarying method. He will weaken our self-control. We stop listening to the voice of conscience. We're about to say something we shouldn't, and conscience says, don't say it. But we say it anyway. Conscience starts to be quiet. And we've lost our self-control as Christians. Same method is bringing us to a backslidden state. Discipline. They had no discipline, these men. They wandered around and screamed and shouted and didn't dress and clean themselves and so on. The Christian life depends on discipline. The regular prayer time. The regular reading of the word. The saving of time. So that it isn't frittered away. Discipline. Self-discipline. My worst times as a Christian. Across my life, my worst times, I think, have always been rooted in failure of self-discipline. When I've had a self-discipline time, when a failure of self-discipline time, downhill I've gone. I think it's probably the same for you. What the legion of demons did there, the devil tries to do even to Christians who aren't demon-possessed and get us to erode away in discipline so that we no longer, I've got to keep this timetable, I've got to keep this prayer time, my devotions, my duties. 
Same things. Those men didn't examine themselves. They didn't have targets. You have to have, as a Christian, I've got to have aims to accomplish certain things for the Lord, to do them as well as, am I doing all the things I should be doing as a Christian? What did, where did I go wrong today? Self-examination and self-control and discipline. These men were restless and frustrated, even into self-harm. They were so angry and frustrated. Devil tries to bring that about in us. Somebody may have a gift. And the devil will start to work on your daydreams. Shouldn't you be exercising that gift? Shouldn't you have a hobby or a pursuit? Or shouldn't you follow that, have an ambition for that gift? And start channeling all your efforts into this. I've known Christians, they've spoilt their whole testimony and service for the Lord because they've gone off on a digression, pursuing some objective, some dream, which couldn't be attained in their case, wasn't practical for them. And it's cost them their emotional energy and their time and their Christian life has gone by the wayside. Starts off, you see it here, it's a method of Satan in these men to make them frustrated and, and angry and self-harm, self-harm. Well, indulging in silly things that will lead us to sin. Too much TV, watching worldly entertainment, watching things that will corrupt your mind even. Gaming, Christians, gaming, all the time it takes. And the images they see, and the weakening effect. It's like self-harm. Why don't you take a blade and harm yourself? It's as foolish for a Christian. You see it all here, if you look. We are not ignorant of his methods in bringing us down and bringing us to backsliding. And the man becomes a complete contradiction. He ran to the beach, flung himself on the ground as if to say, Lord, help me. But the voice that came out of him said, Leave me alone. Don't torment me. The devil will bring you as a Christian to the point where you find Christian service irksome. Tormenting, preparing that lesson, teaching those children. Oh, I can't get up and go out and visit the absent child. It's irksome. It's intolerable to have to do these things. Why is this part of the Christian life? And you're a split personality. You want to please the Lord and you don't want to do his bidding. Exactly the same as you find in this miracle. We are not ignorant of his devices. Well, that's enough. That's all we have time for. But, oh, dear friends, it's a miracle showing salvation. It's a miracle for believers 
showing us Satan's methods and devices. And it's another view of the mighty compassion of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour.